We will start off with a look at the Sunday newspapers along with our panel. Sheila Riley is the head of digital with Iconic News, the regional newspaper group and a former editor of the Longford Leader. Good morning, Sheila. Happy Christmas. Good morning, Gavin. Uh, Fergus Finlay is a former CEO of Bernardo's, now a member of the Charities Regulator and a former advisor to the Labour Party. Good morning, Fergus. Morning, Happy Gavin. Christmas. Uh, and Michael Nugent is a chairman of Atheist Ireland, among many other things. Good morning, Michael. Happy Christmas holidays. Good morning and, and happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. Yeah. Okay. It's, 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 not, it's not a Christian festival. It predates Christian Christianity by centuries. I get we're going to tease that out in just a couple of minutes. Uh, you're all very welcome anyway and good morning and thank you for all coming in so close to Christmas. Uh, a quick look at the newspaper headlines this morning uh, for those of you who haven't seen them or those of you who are uh, justifiably still in bed after Christmas shindig. Uh, the Sunday Independent, a nation yearns for meaning at Christmas. That is in fact not a maudlin editorial but rather the result of an opinion poll that they've commissioned. Uh, the vast majority of people believe Christmas has become too commercial but households nationwide will still spend on average €1,200 Euro this festive season according to a Sunday Independent Cantor Millward Brown opinion poll. The poll comes as Ireland's Christmas shopping spree hits new heights this year with the country's grocery bill in December alone set to reach 1 billion euro for the first time but today's nationwide poll also finds that a massive 86% believe the celebration of the birth of Christ has become too commercial. Also on the front page of the Sunday Independent, uh, Sharon Niviolon makes a formal complaint to RTE. Uh, Neve Horan reports that the RTE news anchor Sharon Niviolon has made a formal complaint to RTE bosses after refusing to go on air following a disagreement in the newsroom. Sunday Independent has learnt Miss Niviolon, who is one of the most recognisable and experienced faces at the national broadcaster, has concerns over another of issues which have emerged since she moved from co-anchor of the 6-1 News to a new role as the sole anchor of the RTE news at 9 o'clock. A similar story on the front of the Irish Mail on Sunday, which says that the popular news presenter and the head of news and current affairs John Williams had a blazing newsroom row on the night of the crucial no confidence vote in Theresa May which was Wednesday of the week before last it says Miss Niviolon was stood down and left the RTE studios after threatening not to present the 9 o'clock news hours before she was due on air. Sources have said the revelation comes in the wake of RTE confirming that the former political correspondent Martina Fitzgerald has decided to leave the station after 18 years working there. Uh, I'll come back to that I'm sure in a few minutes time. The Sunday Business Post uh, this is one that will uh, perhaps exercise a lot of people given what's been going on in some parts of the country. New eviction legislation is being held up by banks' concerns over non-performing loans. Ireland's mountain a mountain, it says, of non-performing loans represents excuse me, a national systemic risk in the event of a downturn, according to the Governor of the Central Bank. Philip Lane's warning comes as the government is struggling to bring in a new law to protect homeowners from repossessions over concerns that it could threaten the ability of banks to sell off their bad loans. Philip Lane has an opinion piece in today's Sunday Business Post. He writes that while many households and firms have sacrificed much to reduce debt levels over the last decade, the stock of non-performing loans is still too high and constitutes a national systemic risk in the event of a future downturn, effectively saying that the banks need to clean up their balance books in case there is another downturn, which of course does have knock-on effects one of which is dealt with on the front of the Sunday Independent. Vigilantes warn bankers, now your homes are at risk. Uh, Roscommon raiders threaten further further targeted attacks, according to Mark Ty. He says that the group that attacked the security men guarding a repossessed house in Roscommon last week has now threatened to step up its operations by targeting the homes of bankers and receivers. In a sinister new development following last week's vigilante attack, a source involved in the raid claims that the group, which includes people whose homes or farms have been repossessed or under threat of eviction, has already carried out surveillance on its targets. We have done our homework, uh, said the source. 
uh, below the fold there by the way uh, the Taoiseach has come to the defence of the European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker after claims he is engaged in excessive drinking and inappropriate behaviour towards women this is of course uh, Jean-Claude Juncker who is regularly accused of having cognac for breakfast um, also on the front uh, Mary Lou Macdonald pole slump as Sinn Féin's shine fades which is something you really shouldn't say ten times very quickly um, and on the front page of the Sunday World Christmas bloodbath man shot in the head outside Dublin home as Gardaí probe links to the hit, uh, Hitch Hutch Kinahan feud uh, that is the front page of the Sunday World um, so plenty to get our teeth into go back to our panel though um, Michael Nugent uh, chairman of Atheist Ireland the story in the front page of the Sunday Independent uh, a nation yearns for meaning at Christmas uh, do you think so? Well the implication is that the nation survives without a sense of meaning or a need for meaning for 11 months of the year which I think is a bit odd I think it's the same <laughs> throughout the Touché. year it's, part of, it's just part of the human condition is, is that we enjoy a sense of meaning, we enjoy a sense of connectedness with other people, we enjoy relationships and we enjoy being absorbed in various activities and religions hijack those natural human attributes and claim that they're religious attributes but they're not and then they, they attach them onto pre-existing festivals and claim that they're religious You, you don't think religion tries to argue that that sort of sense of that, that part of the human condition, that sense of belonging and togetherness is part of the way that we might have been intelligently designed anyway? Well, the idea of intelligent design, of course, is is, is just a, a, a made-up attempt to make uh, the idea of creation sound scientific, which it isn't. I mean, we know how we evolved. We know that we're social animals and that, that because of that, we have evolved senses of empathy, compassion, uh, cooperation, reciprocity. They're human attributes. They're nothing to do with religion. And we celebrate them all year round, not just at Christmas. Uh, Fergus, do you find any uh, irony in the fact that the nation is spending more and more and yet is complaining that apparently Christmas is becoming too commercial? Well, uh, the irony I found was in the headline uh, that a nation yearns for meaning at Christmas. If you read the details of the poll, the headline should really be that the nation yearns for drink at Christmas. Um, <laughs> Which spending, is also true. We're spending far more in <laughs> but pubs. But less newsworthy. Uh, spending far more in pubs, especially in Dublin. Uh, Leinster people People drink less, apparently, yeah. or spend less in pubs. These are quite striking We spend stats. enormous amounts of money in restaurants at Christmas. Um, uh, I don't know what meaning we're finding in the amounts of money we're spending on drink and food, but um, I, I, uh, I just think the whole thing is a bit bizarre. I, I, I mean, Michael is right. You know, if we yearn for meaning, we yearn for meaning all year long. We don't yearn for meaning at Christmas. We don't find particular. Christmas is different only because it's a time when there's downtime, when family is together, uh, when you're supposed to, and many of us do, uh, enjoy, you know, um, being with our families in peace and quiet and, and, and all that. And that's the meaning of Christmas. Um, if a nation is yearning for meaning at Christmas, um, it's missing something, do you know? Mm. Uh, one of the, the things that Fergus was referring to there, by the way, it's, it's further down in the piece. Uh, Dublin residents are far ahead of those in other regions when it comes to going out of the town, it says. In Munster, people expect to spend €93 euro on restaurants, but in Dublin, the average spend on down, dining out will be €228. Euro. Leinster households will spend €91 euro on pubs, while in Dublin, the average household spend will be €210. Euro. Which, first of all, it makes me wonder, Sheila, whether uh, those of us who live in the capital are getting just completely screwed. Oh, in you're just getting totally and utterly ripped off. Absolutely, um, yeah. I so, mean, the last time, what do you pay? What do you pay for a pint up here now? It must uh, be a tenner at this stage, well, is it's, it? It's, it's, it's over five now and it's always very demoralising when you can't justify beer confidently hand over five euro and expect to be able to no. pay or someone to come back to ask you for another 20 cents. That only happens cent. the further away you get from the city. <laughs> yeah. that, that, that's, that's, that's what happens You're just then. buying a pint for yourself, not for anybody else as well. But the, and that's the, 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 the meaning of Christmas. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> we were talking about this before we came into the studio and the three of us here don't really go into pubs. So there are people who are spending 600 euro in the pubs mm. instead of 200 euro because otherwise you wouldn't make up these averages. Yeah. I don't, I, in fact, I don't even know where these figures come from. Um, I, I, I think it is possible to eat out in Dublin for less than 200 quid. Mm. Um, uh, you may not choose to, but if you don't choose to, you don't choose to. Um, I, I, you know, the the... The sad thing, in a way, is if if that's the only meaning we can find in Christmas is stuffing ourselves and filling ourselves full of drink. And I say that as somebody who confidently expects to be <laughs> completely stuffed by by uh, Tuesday evening. Yeah, and so say all of I, us. Yeah, no, I, I think there is more to it than that. Like I, Brendan O'Connor, or Brendan O'Connor's article in the end is very good he, mm. about this. You know, stop droning on, don't let guilt wreck your, wreck your Christmas. Yeah, so like the, as the in point, the misfortune of others shouldn't be enough to cloud your enjoyment yeah, of... Yeah, he makes a number of really good points and then the first thing he does say, which I think is so true, because this is me, if somebody asked me in a poll, do you feel Christmas has become so too commercial? I would say yes, right? Mm. Then I was in Aldi yesterday and I literally bought Aldi cabin out of it. There was nothing left. There couldn't have been anything left in it after me because the car was just packed to the gills. So he makes the point, you know, I think I saw that 86% of people out shopping yesterday. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think we were all there. Do you know what I mean? We think all panic. We just panic. There is that sense of... Oh, panic Jesus. at the end. Well, yeah. It's only two days. Like, you know, well, the, the panic is, is the reason why supermarkets are open 24 hours for three or four days before Christmas, isn't it? Because of the panic that, oh my God, you might have bought one slab too few of the beer for whatever cousin or aunt or uncle is coming over by. that might possibly drop but it, by but I mean, it isn't just about that there is a kind of another element of uh, consumerism we might feel it's too consumer consumeristic but the reality is Fergus is completely right Christmas it's about family it's about kind of the good and decency that's out there and and and, and in fairness Brendan O'Connor makes that point too there's a lot of decency out there and it's kind of a, it's about celebrating that the goodness in people mm. and the goodness in human yeah. beings and in all those relationships and I think it's also have. it is about remembering and I don't want anyone to feel guilty but I mean, I know, I know myself families who are going to have miserable Christmases. I know families who are terrified of Christmas. I know children, uh, and I've worked with children, um, who, for whom Christmas is just another awful day in the mm. year, uh, a day of disappointment. And, uh, and you know, and th- we can't forget that either. You is, know. is the disappointment, how acutely do they feel it? Do they feel that it's compounded because they're aware that other people aren't being disappointed so that their, their disadvantage in life feels like it hits home that bit harder? I, or I, is every day just an equal slog? I have conflicting experiences this time of year because I, I impersonate a certain other person um, I, I have a red suit that I put on and I, I, I go out and I, I work with uh, you know projects mm. and so on uh, and I meet kids um, uh, I, I had to persuade a child in, on the south side of Dublin the other day that yes Santa does find you if you're in a hotel mm. I, had to, I had to work hard at persuading then I met another kid who said I don't want anything for Christmas because my mummy's just got a new house for Christmas and that's all we need oh. so there are good things and bad things happening mm. but the bad things are pretty bad you know they're pretty terrible uh, and I think it you know just give a, a minute's thought to it I think would be would be something worth doing mm. you know? I think it's really encouraging to hear though that some children still have that sense of perspective that know that what they've already got what they want for Christmas I, I, I want nothing for Christmas because my mummy got a new house that's, that's Ch- what and children are far so more so likely to have those, that sense of reality and justice and compassion mm. than adults it's kind of beaten out of us as yeah, we while, while the rest of us are going and spending 220 quid on dinner apparently um, Sheila um, Santa's been coming to your house uh, for a couple of years as well has yeah. it changed your experience of it materially do you get that kind of that, that warm you know fuzzy glow because of this idea that people are taking it in for the first time. Absolutely, yeah. When Santa when Santa came back to our house, my son is seven now. 
uh, with the first couple of years were in my mother's house and the first couple of Christmases and she said and Santa stage, knew where to go he did and he always does always does Marvelous. and he always does and that's the thing that children need to remember and I remember her saying to me isn't it wonderful to have Santa back in the house and it just is mm. it really does uh, spread that bit of extra magic dust you know on, on the whole experience on the whole Christmas experience it totally and utterly changes it and yeah it means that you're not outspending how much was it on drink uh, uh, how much was it on drink yeah, I, I, <laughs> I was over from last night yeah. I can't it's remember not your, you're not outspending in Dublin yeah, yeah. Not apparently it's, it's in four euros fifty in Cavan so well, you know, that's where supply and demand meets, isn't it? Because Cavan people are only willing to meet a demand for a certain price. Um, that's it, as long as everybody knows that and understands that. Move to Cavan, folks. <laughs> there you go, um, Michael. I saw you observing uh, on Twitter a few days ago that you and your your colleagues in AD Starnham were uh, out for your Christmas drinks, at your Christmas party, and there was a flood of replies saying, "Hang on, no, wait, atheists can't, can't celebrate Christmas. Stop trying to reappropriate Christian holidays." You made your point, obviously, that it is in itself a reappropriated holiday and that other things exist. Um, but to what degree do you celebrate, commemorate, mark, observe Christmas the same as people of a faith would do? Well, you, you could ask it the other way around. In what way do people of faith celebrate Christmas well, in the same true. way as I do? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the way that I do is uh, first thing in the morning, I listen to Slade's Merry Christmas, everybody. Which is, I suppose, depending on when you grow up, that's what you're. It's the secular Angelus really, it, is, it is, yeah, and, and, and for people with no taste. <laughs> <laughs> for people, I, I, if we're going to start an argument now about Slade, Slade are one of the best rock bands, oh, uh, you know, and, and that's probably kind of unrepresentative of them, but it is the best Christmas album. Mm. So I, I go to my old childhood home uh, and have dinner with my brothers and sister. Um, I have another slight difference than, than a lot of people. I'm a vegan, so I would have a, a, a vegan dinner rather than the traditional turkey and so on. Is, is there a deluxe vegan dinner that you can have in the same way that other people roll out the turkey or the goose or the turkey and ham? Is there a, like a deluxe vegan style? Is there an extra special tofu you can get or, or what do you take? Well, I tend to not like the, the processed foods. I don't like being reminded of the fact that, uh, you know, something is, is made to look like a, 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 um, a dead animal. So, so I, I tend to prefer just nut roast or something like that, mm. um, you know, roasted cauliflower uh, you know there's lots of things that you can have that, that are just as nice so we do that you know we we, uh, we watch reruns of Morecambe and Wise we watch Top of the Pops we uh, just do that, those, those type of things and we remember our parents who were both dead my younger brother Billy who died quite young my uh, late wife Anne we remember them mm. and we do the, the normal things that, that, that everybody does at, at this. It's, it's essentially it's a midwinter festival. It's, it's the, the celebrating and remembering the, the turn of the season. Do you indulge in the most traditional of Christmas pastimes, which is to get into heated arguments with your siblings over dinner about your views on the world and politics and whatnot? Well, what we our Mike, arguments... Michael, Michael gets into heated arguments when he's on his own. So <laughs> the answer to that is probably yes. Yeah, they, they, they put <laughs> me in a room in the morning. No, our, our, our main row. arguments, our, our main rivalries. Now, this is our one, our one nod to modernity in our traditional Christmases. Is we have an annual PlayStation Nugent family football tournament. Um, where I play as, as either Bohemians or Leeds okay. my brothers play as, as uh, Barcelona and Juventus 96 one of my brothers doesn't support Juventus he just supports the 96 team okay. and so we have that tournament every year right. and that, that will provide enough arguments to okay. keep us going for the which, next decade just, just for my personal research I'm asking for a friend here uh, which football franchise game allows you to play as the Juventus 96 team well you can make them Oh, you can you can design the players. This is the age of convenience. I demand classic <laughs> eras. I demand some game that comes pre-programmed with Brazil 1970 uh, and nobody else. But it, it's funny though, isn't it? You, like you know, I, I'm not religious. I'm a humanist. Michael's an atheist. But it doesn't. That actually doesn't 
have any bearing. I mean, the the Christmas song that moves me the most is Oh Holy Night. Um, mm. I, I think it is the single most beautiful Christmas song of them all. Um, and and uh, I, I, I mean, I don't see why you have to reject what is beautiful just because it has a religious background to it. Um, I, I certainly would reject a nut roast for Christmas dinner, I have to say. That, that would offend <laughs> all my, my pre-religious <laughs> sensibilities. Is there another point, though, that, that Michael stumbled across there, though, that this idea that people who, you know, I don't know whether you're a vegan or vegetarian or whatever, but that you shouldn't always have to conform to this idea that some animal has given up its life for you to have, uh, you know, the meat sweats at tea time on Christmas Day. So we came in now to have guilt laid on us, did we? <laughs> Give me a break. I'm going to have turkey on Christmas Day, OK? okay? Uh, five, I'm three, not going to apologise to anyone okay. for having turkey uh, on Christmas uh, Day. 53106 is the number if you want to lay on some festive guilt as well to our, our, our panel this morning. Uh, Michael, there is one bit uh, that I missed on the, the front page of the Sun Independent that I did want to ask you about. Um, the National Maternity Hospital... Uh, Sunday Times, sorry, excuse me, I gave the, the wrong title there. Sunday Times. Uh, the National Maternity Hospital has said that an invitation it sent to the inauguration of its new master, describing a key part of the event as a mass, was a mistake. Uh, a note accompanying the 100 invitations, which were issued in the name of the retired High Court President Nicholas Kearns, who is the deputy chair of the National Maternity Hospital at Hollis Street, said the inauguration of incoming master Shane Higgins on January the 1st would begin with a mass at midday. Uh, Roisin Shortall, Social Democrats TD, observed that this was going to be uh, tone deaf to public concerns. An M- NMH spokesman said that the word mass was an error. Um, Every, many people have been pushing for you know the guaranteed you know the secularisation of the new National Maternity Hospital when it's built on the site of St Vincent's. But the existing hospital on Hollis Street, for better for worse, is an institution which has the Archbishop of Dublin as its governor or its chairperson. Is it not appropriate if those people want to pursue uh, the idea of having a mass to mark his arrival as the master of the hospital? to have something without people getting concerned about it. Well, if they want to make it clear that their primary loyalty is to the Vatican and they want to make it clear that they want to exclude people who don't have those beliefs, then of course they can do that. But is it loyalty to the Vatican or is it just a, you know, them personally seeking the indulgence of or the, the blessing of whatever deity they hold dear before they take on a very significant job? Well, well, technically it is loyalty to the Vatican. that They do owe their primary loyalty to the Vatican as do the the people who run 90% of our primary schools. So th- those are issues. But, but by the way, the state doesn't get a free ride on this either. I mean, we have fortunately this year got rid of the blasphemy law, which, mm. which is a, a good step. But we still have prayers at the start of the Doyle every day, prayers at the start of the law term. We still have a, a religious oath required to become president yeah. or judge. Or the, well, the, the, the preamble of the constitution the is, is pretty clear. So yeah. there's a lot to go. Uh, you know, and, you know, we used to be a Catholic country. We're now a, a secular pluralist country increasingly, but still with a lot of Catholic hangovers that we have to, to gradually get rid of. Uh, Fergus, any thoughts on that? Um, just as a matter of fact, Michael, I don't think there's an oath required to become Taoiseach. There is, there is yes, it's, no, it's because he's a member of the Council of State. And if you're a member of the Council of State, uh, you have to swear the religious oath for it, that. It, for that, but yeah. not, not for Taoiseach. No, no, they do actually, because Eamon Gilmore had that problem when he was tarnished. Because Eamon was an atheist. Because he was an atheist, and, and, and he was oh, asked, because we lobbied him about that, and, and we asked him about that. And, and he, what his legal advice was, that if he declined to swear the oath and, uh, um, and thereby be on the Council of State, he would have to resign as Taoiseach. Uh, I'm just looking up the the oath here from the Council of State and it says that every member of the Council of State shall at the first meeting thereof uh, take and subscribe the declaration in the following form in the presence of Almighty God I do solemnly and sincerely promise and declare that I will faithfully and conscientiously fulfil my duties as a member of the Council of State so the fact Michael your case is that as they have to do that in the presence of Almighty God that effectively means that you are required to be Christian it's forcing somebody to to swear an oath that's against their conscience so a conscientious atheist couldn't take up that position so so, I mean look everybody would realise 
realise Damon Gilmore not but conscientious every, atheist? That's up to Eamon's conscience but everybody would realise automatically if you had to swear that there's no God in order to take that oath. Yeah, the the oath shouldn't exist it shouldn't be there it shouldn't be a, a religious oath shouldn't be formed part of our constitution for any office any office whatsoever um, but this thing about the mass uh, I mean is that just not nutty I mean after all the controversy after all they've been through to actually Send. And the other and they wrote thing, back. They did say that yeah. it was oh, sent they, an yeah, error. Yeah, that, that, so, well, they yeah. appear to have, have now written it down as an error. The hospital, uh, a spokesman told the Sunday Times, uh, the hospital has organised an act of celebration on the commencement of a new term of the Mastership. It is an inclusive act with representatives participating from interfaith and secular communities. Uh, the hospital declined to release the names of the interfaith and secular representatives who are due yeah. to participate. Because because they're still, because they're no, still I'm curious to find out who the, yeah. these secular representatives are. to try and find them um, because they realised they made a serious boo-boo um, and, and they're trying to rectify the position now. The other interesting thing is the hundred people who had the, the hundred select people invited um, uh, and, and why is it so so limited? I seem to recall that when there was controversy around um, the maternity hospital moving to St. Vincent's I think it might have been mentioned at the time that the board of directors or governors or whatever the structure is may potentially actually have 100 members on it because there are so many civic society and the parish priest of Weston Row was on the board and the archbishop was on the board that there are so many different categories of so it's very in-house. It's very in-house. It would, so it would seem to be. But um, Sheila, is there not though, and, and this is the point that I keep finding myself going back to though, that if the new master, I, I have no idea what his, his faith is, the new master who's coming in, uh, Shane Higgins, who's taking over from Rona Mahoney on Tuesday week, um, if he is of the Christian faith and it is a body which still has the archbishop as its chair and the parish priest as a member of its board, are they not allowed to have like, no, a No, I don't think it's appropriate at all. I, I, I think if they want to have a service to, to mark... Um, uh, Shane Higgins coming into the role that's entirely and utterly appropriate and that should be a kind of an interfaith service or some sort of a you know a nod to all uh, all encompassing because bear in mind this is a hospital that is supposed to, to serve people of all faiths and none I mean that's the reality of, of the business of a hospital isn't it why, a day why? in day out I think they should have I think it's nice to have a ceremony to mark the, the start well, of it I mean, nobody, had, nobody did a mass for me when I became Chief Executive of Bernardo's you don't you don't get a religious ceremony uh, held in your honour because you become the boss of something uh, and you shouldn't. I mean, that's just nothing. Well, uh, if it's for... It's just crazy. My take on that is, if it's for the it's people hard, who are involved a, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the business of the hospital, you know, I, I understand we don't exactly know who the hundred people are, that it's it's a way of, you know, meeting these people. And there's some sort of a service to acknowledge that this is the start of a very important and significant role and that's a good thing. I think you that's des- a nice when you thing. Decide, when you decide but, that you're going to mark the start of somebody's job with religion you're making a statement about the import of that job and the code of conduct that will govern that job etc etc yeah, and it's a you, serious mistake Shin, if you put a look at yeah, the other I way around hypoth- hypothetically if anybody got a position in any state related or public function job and we heard that there is going to be a ceremony uh, to introduce them to that job at which it will be emphasised that there is no God Everybody would make realise that that's not what the job is about. Whether yeah, there is or isn't a God, sh- I don't think to do God with. should come into it at all. I think there should be some sort. Of, I do kind of like the idea. I can see. I don't like care about it one way or the other. I see the logic of having some sort of an introductory ceremony or a ceremony to mar- mark the start of the role. That's it. But I don't think that should be a mass. Absolutely not. I think Rosine Shortle is dead right on this. Like, you know, and I suppose, and I totally agree with what both of you are saying. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. You know, the reality is it's the start of a job. But I kind of think this is a very important job uh, and that it's, it's not tied the most in. It's not the most the important job in the I mean, world. Imagine, imagine somebody being uh, appointed, let's say, Secretary General of the Department of Education and 
and you can't start your job without mass being said or um, Secretary General of the Department of Health or Secretary General of the United Nations and you can't start your job without but it shouldn't be a mass. Do, it's though, not a mass. We do in this mass. country have presidential inaugurations, we which do. don't take the formal effect of a mass, but there, there is that, that religious infall of blessing ahead yeah, there of is it. A, there, is a, there is a protocol, correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, um, there's a protocol that has introduced a lot of religiosity into the inauguration of the presidency. Albeit Completely unnecessary. Completely unnecessary. Um, it has no bearing on the constitution or uh, the role or anything of that sort. And in an attempt to... Um, to make it less religious, uh, they've now succeeded in making it more religious. I, it, it used to be the case that the cardinal or the archbishop would say a prayer uh, and we'd all go on with the rest of our lives. Now, 17 people have to say prayers or non-prayers or anti-prayers one after the other. And the thing goes on for hours and but hours and given hours. that it's, it's, a, it's, it's a Christian state and if you read the preamble oh, of the Constitution... But if you read the preamble no. of the Constitution that it says in the name of the most uh, highly, uh, uh, almighty God and in the Christian spirit of the Trinity... It's a Christian constitution and the Constitution establishes the state... So that, in effect, whether we like to think of it as secular or not, there is still a kind of a Christian thread that runs through our institutions of state. We are not a Christian yeah. state. It is something that, that, that we have to gradually catch up with. The, the, the constitution and the laws have to gradually catch up with the reality that the people of Ireland are a pluralist people now. And, and that the only way for the... I, I fully respect everybody's right to freedom of religion or belief and to practice their religion. But the only way for the state to protect equally everybody's right to freedom of religion is for the state to stay out of it and for the state to be neutral. Um, one of the common threads, uh, panel, running through all the papers today is about the whole question mark of home repossessions, particularly uh, given that very that lightning rod of a case uh, in Falskin County, Ross Common. Um, there is one piece on the front of the Sunday Business Post. It's a line that they've taken from an op-ed written by the Governor of the Central Bank. Uh, Philip Lane has written today that while many households and firms have sacrificed much to reduce debt levels over the last decade, the stock of non-performing loans is still too high and constitutes a national systemic risk in the event of a future downturn. Um, Fergus Finley, is that a teeny bit alarmist, the idea that just because banks have some customers who are struggling to repay, that that is now suddenly some threat to the, the material fabric of the, the financial system? Well, well, I, I, do, I can't claim the expertise to say that. Um, I do know that there's a huge overhang of debt still, um, not just in terms of uh, non-performing mortgages and so mm. on, but in terms of credit card debt and, and so on. I think there's an awful lot of families uh, still at very, very considerable risk. And I suppose if you add all that up, it poses a very significant threat to the economy uh, as, as you know, as time goes by. Uh, we're, we're by no means out of those woods. But in relation to the possession of houses and the vigilantism around that, mm. I mean, I've worked with perhaps a dozen families who have lost their homes um, over the last two or three years who are now counted on the homelessness statistics uh, who who are living in hubs or in hotels. Nobody came to their defence with baseball bats um, and, and, and nobody said this is wrong, this is cruel, this is unfair. Um, they were They were families who um, whose economic circumstances were such that they just couldn't keep going. Um, uh, and and the job, I think, of the state has to be to find alternatives for those families. I'm, I don't believe in evictions. I don't believe in forced evictions. Um, I, I think the law ought to be uh, such that an eviction is complete 
an absolute last resort. So then what, and what should, is the only relate, should only relate to people who won't perform as opposed to people who can't the, perform. What is the alternative then if you can't have forced evictions then if you'd knock on someone's door and said hi we're the bank we've obtained a court order we'd like to repossess your home now well, and they well, say no. Yeah but the, you see there's three or four steps that have to have, that should happen before that. I mean there are different ways of structuring mortgages. There's uh, you know mortgage to rent and mm. there's all that all those kind of models that apply in other countries that we haven't seriously tried here at all. Uh, none of that is to justify by, uh, you know, taking up, putting people in hospital or killing animals, um, uh, you know, that, that kind of viciousness that went on mm. uh, in that Roscommon case. And it, it does strike me that there are certain kinds of cases. We had one a couple of years ago where you, you remember Vincent Brown outside the house in Kalini. I do, of course, um, Hill. And, uh, and, and all of that. Um, Which I think far from his threshold was not really a bog standard house the way that many of us would envision it, uh, despite the way that he was uh, very casually labelling it on TV that time. Sorry it, to interrupt it, you. It was by no means a bog standard <laughs> no. house and it was by no means a bog standard case. And if you read Willie Keeley's piece in The Independent today mm. and, you know, the history of interaction between the owner of this house and a dozen creditors, including the revenue commissioners, you really would wonder what justifies the vigilantism. Like, like sooner or later, some people have to come to terms with their debts. That's not the case for the vast majority of ordinary people who are stuck in homelessness because, uh, because they lost their job, because the family broke down, because debt just didn't mm. just became unmanageable. Um, Sheila, why do you believe that this one then has become such a lightning rod that there was no popular sympathy for the O'Donnell family, for example, when they were being uh, evicted from Gorse Hill and Killiney, but there seems to be so much local sympathy for the McGanns in this particular case. So what what is so different that this one seems to have pushed buttons that others have not? Well, I mean, there's an element of local loyalty in, in that regard, I'd say, at play here. I, I think the video uh, showing the eviction was a huge catalyst uh, in relation to kind of what it subsequently kicked off, you know. Um, and like that, that wasn't at the very least you could say it wasn't very nice viewing you no. know what it was really uh, it was really kind of distre- brutal, distressing yeah, to watch that mm. you know uh, and to watch that taking place so I think that's actually what the difference was that's what t- tipped things over the edge and then during that at, it, there was the exchange with the guy who was uh, uh, one of the people coming in to take yes, the house yeah. and uh, you know how can you do that to your fellow Irish man he said he was British and I think that just pushed a button as well with a lot of people too and I just think uh, that was the crucial kind of um, it just it pushed the buttons so, a lot. So of you just buttons. think that the, the, there was a the number of different of the elements, and the yeah. fact that it was it was caught and live streamed and stuff that there was so much of it that it, it in itself is what hardened people's. I actually do believe that. It. Yeah, I think that that's kind of that was that was the key the key part of it. I don't think you would have seen the same type of reaction um, in in response to it had it been something different. To be honest, you know, I think Fergus makes a very good point about you know the people who are you know in hubs and hotels today who have just been evicted out of family homes and that you know and you know no was out for them and I, that's a really important point you know mm-hmm. You know, how, how are we making this distinction and I mean the reality is sending then in you know the guts of how many tens and tens of people to take out the people who are in the house then and the, the vigilantism that followed that you know I mean that was you know that's just literally taking the law <laughs> into their own hands like do we now you know, are we going to allow this to kind of develop even further? Where is the end for this? That's mm. what I would ask. You know, uh, what, what what point do you draw the line at the law that you don't like? If you don't like this law, if you have an issue in relation to it, well, then take to the streets, protest, you know, lobby, advocate. There's local elections next year. We've seen single issue candidates in the past, you know, 
run for local elections, run for the council. You know, do, do, yeah, take action for sure, but take positive action and take constructive action. Certainly do not take action which involves going in and uh, and hurting people and as as Fergus says, you know, uh, actions that result in an animal being put down because of its injuries. Like, that's just appalling, carry on. Yeah, no, I think there there's definitely a danger of, of things still kicking off a little bit there and Francesca Common has a particularly good piece in the Sunday it's Business Post today strong. where she writes about how uh, cool heads can still prevail and indeed the McCann's could yet... Uh, the McGann's could yet stay in their home but they do need to choose their next move very carefully and she makes the point that uh, because the family is now back in uh, possession of the home but there still remains a repossession order on it uh, that the next time around if there is to be another uh, eviction on the site it will be guardee and not uh, private bailiffs who are carrying that out and that of course could be even more of a lightning rod if it it's appears to be and, and the so agents of the state and so it would be out. and I thought that as well if Francis uh, piece there is actually really really excellent you know she makes a number of, of, of good points in it. and incidentally she says in it that uh, David Hall uh, was down there who runs I Care Housing you know eventually helps people with uh, with these uh, he's a mortgage debt campaigner as we all know he uh, the family apparently was open to the idea of meeting him at one stage and then he went down but he was turned away at the gate you know mm. so there seems to be a lot of conflicting information out there about this about this whole case you know uh, Michael um, we were talking about universal human traits uh, in part one one of those uh, that are you know the universal traits are these uh, these tribal and emotional instincts which we see a little bit at play in all of this um, is there anything that sticks out at you uh, from the coverage of all of this in today's papers? Well, I, I think it's important that um, we protect the primacy of democracy in this. You know, I mean, when you were saying if, if the police or agents of the state were carrying it out, that that might make things worse. I think for most people that would make things better if it was seen to be done by agents of the state rather than by private contractors. Now, you know, I, it could be like a deeply symbolic and a very stirring thing if there's a people there and they clearly have, have commanded so much local sympathy in the region that if Gardaí were to go in and kick people out of a family home that that not might be even more evocative. And, and, and as well, I, I Michael, think you have to remember, yeah, I think you have to remember guards is, going in, you know, as agents of the bank is what people would see there, you know. And that yeah, would but, be, but I, now, I think I your that, point, Sheila, earlier on, your point earlier on, I think, was more relevant. That I, I think the trigger that, that gave the the most recent set of thugs the go ahead was somebody saying that there were British that were involved in it and mm-hmm. there was this this idea of British people coming down here to evict Irish yeah. people from even though it's only a few miles down so the road even, exactly yeah and, and on the island of Ireland so mm-hmm. theoretically according to uh, the, 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 those people mm-hmm. they should be Irish anyway but anyway I, I, I do think it's look the, the details of the economics of how you deal with the balance of, you know, the, the amount that the Sunday Business Post article said is, is owed and, and, and how you balance the rights of the banks and, the, and, and the, the rights of people living in the houses. That's the details of that is beyond me. But, but that is the way that it should be addressed. It should be addressed by legislation. It should be addressed by lobbying politicians. Then in my amateur perspective the banks got a, a big bailout and you know so people who owe money for houses should get some consideration in whatever way mm. the legislation is, is, is put together but the detail of that is beyond me but, but we do th- I do think it's very important to ensure that you don't get thugs with baseball bats using it as an opportunity to undermine democracy mm. and this is a part of the contradiction really in how it's dealt with and it's part of I think Fergus of what makes it so difficult to grapple with is the fact that if you are seen as taking the side of uh, you know the bank in this case if you t- want to take the side of law and order then you you are appearing to take the side of faceless global institutions that have ruined the world already and if you take the side of the family then you appear to be you know de facto taking the side of vigilantism so there is no you know moral high ground that satisfies every well, cause just, in this let's case let's follow michael's lead then and just take the side of democracy um vigilantism is not a slippery slope. It's a vicious downward spiral. It makes things worse everywhere it happens. Um, and, and it ends up in conflict which is corrosive, deep, 
long lasting, which leaves scars that that sometimes last for generations. Um, I mean, we like the whole thing about eviction offends something in our psyche in Ireland because of you know famine, yeah, we think about land, yeah. the land league, and, yeah. all the land yeah. league and, and all of that. And those people who went out to Gorse Hill um, a couple of years ago, they called themselves something like the new land league or yes. the land league of today or something. Um, so, so uh, like, and, you know, to taking baseball bats up in the face of that, that kind of nihilist politics, which is anti-democratic. It's not just anti-rule of law, it's anti-democratic. Then I suppose the question for people who support the McGann family and who disagree with the uh, the manner or even the principle of an eviction, what, what is the, the correct democratic principled way to express that dissent? Uh, well, it's that very interesting that David Hall, you know, who has a track record in this area, uh, offered to negotiate on behalf of the family and wasn't allowed to do so by the vigilantes, as far as I can tell. Um, the, the, the solution to all these things is a negotiated one. It has to be a negotiated one. Um, if they're back in in the House now, if there's still a court order outstanding, there are lawyers, there are systems, there are ways in which negotiations can happen. They may not be able to save their house at the end of the day, given the accumulation of debt that we read about in the in the newspapers mm-hmm. and given, you know, the fact that there are so many, or there have been in the past anyway, so many creditors. Our, our demonstrations, albeit now, and I should stress uh, the principle of a peaceful demonstration, which doesn't result in any damage being caused to anyone, uh, demonstrations at uh, KBC branches, is that the, the, the affectable, the civil society way of expressing disgust at this? Well, I wouldn't take part in a, 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 KB, a demonstration on a KBC branch, although I have my own issues with KBC Bank. Um, <laughs> I have had in the past. Yeah, um, I might talk about that during the break. But but um, but breaking their windows, threatening their staff, um, like what has that got to do with anything? Yeah. You know, these are uh, bank officials are ordinary workers. Mm-hmm. They're they're you and I. You know, and they go about their jobs and and so on. Whatever the leadership of the banking system did. Um, I mean, you know, we all we all have friends who work in banks who've been spat at and abused and, you know, um, uh, shouted at in pubs and so on. There are there are people who work for banks who are afraid to tell the polite company that they work in mm. banks because of because of their their reputation and damage that was done in the past. Um, that's just not fair to anybody. No, and that's way. yeah, that's why I would be really concerned about uh, the piece that Mark Tai has in the front of the Sunday Times. You know, vigilantes warn bankers now your homes are at risk, and he, he's writing that the group that attacked the security men uh, have threatened to step up their operations by targeting the homes of bankers and receivers. You know, like here mm. you are, oh, so you're targeting the worker. You know, bankers and receivers are people who work in banks and accountants. Essentially, you know, they're people. The vast majority of cases who are. In the same as we all are in salaried employment, they're going to do this their job the best their ability. This no, isn't a political exactly. movement. This isn't a movement. This isn't a group of people that has any kind of democratic mandate, has ever sought a democratic mandate. We don't even know their names. These are people who wear hoodies and hide in the dark and who do their business in the dark. But then, yeah, they will not be sitting at a microphone in this no. radio, in well, studio or any other studio just to find well, what they're doing. On that point, and not to present it as some sort of a false equivalence, but then what did you make of the comments from uh, the Garda Commissioner Drew Harris earlier this week? Because he was at a press conference in Kevin Street and I happened to ask him, you know, we've seen these videos of uh, repossessions in, in scenes that a lot of people would find unsavoury or which border on assault and Garda are there to police them but don't appear to ever intervene when they see heavy-handed tactics being used. And that then almost comes with the public perception of there being some sort of imprimatur or a guarantee. And he said in response uh, that no member of Angarda Siakana would ever go out to such a thing and allow violent scenes to unfold on their watch, which I think a lot of people, if they've seen the original footage from Roscommon, would mm. find that very hard to believe. Greg, mm. your thoughts? Well, well, it's got to get us act together. You know, I mean, the, the, we, like we had an incident 
in the inner city in Dublin six months ago, uh, where the guards were heavily involved and yes. where there were suspicions of guards removing their identity tags and, and mm. all that kind of thing. This is on Frederick um, Street. Frederick Street, yes. yeah. And and uh, there have to be very simple rules. If violence occurs, no matter who perpetrates it, the, viol- the guards have to step in and stop it. If they need reinforcements, reinforcements have to be supplied. Um, guards must wear their uniforms at all times. They must wear their badges of identity at all times. We must know we must know who our defenders are. I mm. um, want to turn our attentions uh, across the water uh, for a few minutes. The front page of The Observer. Uh, Corbyn faces furious Labour backlash over backing Brexit. Jeremy Corbyn last night faced a storm of criticism from Labour activists and MPs after suggesting he would press ahead with Brexit if the party won a snap general election. In a sign that he is losing backing among overwhelmingly pro-Remain Labour supporters, Corbyn was also accused of betraying the party membership by appearing reluctant to back the idea of supporting Remain in a second referendum. Um, Fergus, you have links to the uh, the Irish sister party uh, of British Labour, Jeremy Corbyn's um, band of, of brothers I'm and sisters. I'm a rank and member. You're, you're a rank I'm a rank and file member. member. Thank, well, thank you for the clarification. Um, obviously, you're not a rank and file member of the one across the water, but it strikes me as somewhat striking. Strikes me as striking. There you go. Um, that You'd know it's coming close to Christmas, wouldn't you? Um, the fact that Jeremy Corbyn is apparently now being uh, criticised by his own backbenchers by suggesting that if he were in government, he would adopt a policy that was put in place by the general public of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. I, I'm, I'm not sure where his members have been. Um, I, I've, I've written uh, in the Irish Examiner that I find it hard to regard Jeremy Corbyn with anything other than contempt um, because he's a, an opposition leader. An opposition leader worth his salt would have swept the Tory government out of power months ago. Mm. It is the worst government since the Second World War, beyond any shadow of a doubt. Um, and there is no opposition to it whatsoever. None. Um, and Jeremy Corbyn is the reason for that. But if his members were expecting him to be anything other than what he is, which is, as I, as, as I understand it, at least an emotional Eurosceptic, um, Mm. Uh, like you know why this moment of revelation right now Um, the the big mistake I I think Corbyn made right at the very beginning was uh, when people voted for Brexit was not to take a position on what kind of Brexit Um, and and, you know Mm. soft Brexit as opposed to we're now now in a situation where there is every possibility that Brexit will just involve complete and utter chaos where it'll be the hardest of hard Brexits. That, that's a real possibility. When you say that he should have swept the Conservative government out of power so long ago, presumably, though, he would still have to deliver the policy that the people put in place for him. So there isn't necessarily well, he could any potentially run a second referendum. Well, well even before you get to a second referendum, there is no definition of what Brexit means. There was no definition of what Brexit means. It, uh, Other than Brexit. Brexit, Brexit was defined, <laughs> has been defined by the process. It's been defined by the negotiation process. The negotiation process could have been a fundamentally different one. It could have been, I mean, Corbyn says in that piece that he's always favoured maintenance of uh, mm. customs union, mm. for example. Um, and and, uh, and But where has he been? Like, how has he been articulating the alternative to the chaos that 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 now ensues. Like, here's, here's an opposition leader confronted with the worst government in the history of the country who hasn't even managed to table a vote of no confidence in, mm. in the government. Whether he wins or loses, he hasn't managed to put one down. But you can't just be an opposition leader that puts down motions of no confidence all the time. I mean, you have to, there still He's has to be a threshold. He's never had one. That, you have chaos after chaos. You've misstep after misstep. You've had, I don't know how many foreign secretaries have resigned. I don't know how many Brexit secretaries have resigned. I don't know how many cabinet rows there have been. Mm. And he sat on the side 
sidelines, see, twiddling been, his thumb. But he's been caught up in the whole, a lot of, in, you know, internal wrangling within Labour as well. They've had that whole no anti-Semitism no They've had, you know, they've just had internal chaos from his, from Absent. when his leadership started. I, I did think Absent I saw this has absence of leadership yeah, is what yeah. I, did, I did see a stat recently that I think 40% of all Labour MPs have resigned from Corbyn's front bench at one time or another which suggests that although there might be the, the, the weakest Conservative front bench in history with They're all these not people a great coming Labour out, front bench there isn't really a great <laughs> Labour one on the other side is there? Um, Michael, what do you think of the prospects for a second referendum? Do you think that the, the British people have walked themselves too far down the plank now to, to reconsider maybe looking well, for I some hope sort of I, I've always thought from the start of this I've thought that Brexit either won't happen or if it does happen that they will sooner or later rejoin or ask to rejoin because um, I, I think the, the English are and it's essentially an, an English issue it's not a British issue mm. Fintan O'Toole has an excellent book out at the moment I don't know if you're going to plug books here with his book <laughs> called, called uh, Heroic Failure where he says it's essentially what this is it's a combination of internal Conservative Party politics um, and what was an English nationalism that was sublimated into a combination of the empire, the commonwealth and is then is is now because of both of those going and because of devolution to Scotland and and, and Wales and Northern Ireland Mm. suddenly there's this English nationalism emerging and that's that's part of what was was given voice by the internal Tory party politics but I I think look look, the English are a very stoical nation but I think this will eventually make them react like we do when we get a bit of snow here and they'll realise that that you, you know it's it, you have to turn back. Now, whether that happens with a second referendum or whether it happens with a hard Brexit followed by trying to come back, I don't know, but I, I, I can't see it sustain, being see, sustainable. All along, we've kind of had this belief that, oh, eventually, you know, the politicians will get their act together and, um, and you know, there will be, an agreement will be put in place and uh, they'll, they'll be able to kind of, you know, uh, I don't know, sort of tiptoe out of, of Europe. And the reality is that because of all the mess that's going on in the Tory party, because they have been totally and utterly consumed with this and really and utterly, you know, abject failures at, you know, being public servants, what they're actually elected to do and just been thinking about their own party and their own structure. They have totally and utterly let people down. They've let their own people down. They're just completely and utterly leaving people in the lurch. Um, because of they're caught up in this whole internal wrangling and as a result of that I think we are just going to tumble towards this hard Brexit that actually at this mm. moment in time it's practically unavoidable and the consequences of that for <coughs> you know regular British people who are going out and doing their jobs and day to day life are absolutely phenomenal I actually see like nearly a dystopian decade ahead of them and it's all because of this complete well, utter lack of leadership from the Labour from the Tory point well, of view as well To bring it home and I'm conscious of time we do want to ask about your highlights of the year as well but just to, to bring it home Sheila you're someone who lives close to the border region and obviously the Irish concerns around the border and the backstop have, have driven a lot of the agenda on this there's a lot of pieces in the papers today suggesting that perhaps the Irish government may have overreached that by asking for the backstop to be so robust that in fact they have asked for a higher price than Britain is, can afford to pay and as a result they will get nothing do you think there's some truth to that? No I don't I think that that was that, that is the price that needs to be the price because if it's not if the, back, the backstop was only ever going but to be a temporary arrangement anyway you know the reality mm. is it was put in it would be put in place it would be hopefully something that would never come to pass and this because is a classic example of media damned if you do and damned if you yeah, don't exactly. could you imagine the derision that would be heaped on Leo Varadkar's head if he had said oh I'm a bit soft on the on the backstop there may have to be negotiation now. We may have to help the Brits, but now we're doing it from a position of strength and we're doing it from a position where we have the solidarity of the rest of Europe. And and they've driven that. They've driven that by demanding this robust backstop. If they had gone in the other way, 
Yeah, I don't think. The Irish right. government would no be no utterly There is no other alternative. And as well as that, they would have been totally and utterly letting down uh, people in border areas. And as well, but on both sides of the border. And the reality is that the backstop is, is vital. It was a vital kind of, you know, backstop, literally a just in case clause, mm. you know, if nothing else was agreed. But yet and all... Uh, in, in kind of sticking to that they did sort of in my mind have stood up for people and have been totally not really right in doing so and this kind of talk is just is just you know 22 looking back on it uh, you know because they kind of see a difficulty in your in the UK that's the UK's difficulty they can't get their act together Well looking back at it and let's hope that this is a, a Brexit free zone because we've got about three minutes left before I have to let you go and I do want to ask each of you for your general highlights or takeaway moments from the year and I'm going to start with you uh, Michael your takeaway moment of 2018 um, politically it would be the two referendums the abortion referendum and the blasphemy law referendum Indeed, You and I were among a band of about 40 people that were still left in the <laughs> county centre when the blasphemy referendum was declared weren't we? That's right yeah yeah. but, but it was as important you know all, all of the, uh, this gradual dismantling of the church-state relationship in Ireland in real life outside of politics normally in a World Cup year it would be the World Cup this year it's the resurgence of Leeds United under Marcelo Bielsa <laughs> uh, Okay well uh, there is a Christmas miracle at Lorsley Keys if they can beat uh, Aston Villa later on today and they're going to be top for Christmas and that will, yeah, which, that will make Which means you get promoted. Every, everyone who is top at Christmas gets promoted over the last 20 years. Uh, as a Manchester United fan, of course, I hope that the team that is not top of the table in the Premier League this Christmas uh, manages to, to claim the <laughs> ultimate like, prize. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, just to, 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 before I lose you entirely, uh, Fergus Finlay, your, your highlight or your takeaway moment from 2018? I, 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 the more I think about it, the more I think I... It, I probably will encapsulate my highlights in terms of three people, um, uh, one of whom sadly is no longer with us. I think my two, my three heroes of the year uh, were Emma Vicknuhuna and Vicky Phelan Mm. uh, and, uh, sad to say, Joe Schmidt. Joe Schmidt? Yes. That's a a quite unusual name to tack on to the other two. Well, I I know and I feel very incongruous doing it. I think it's, it's, uh, but, but, I mean, if you had been in the Aviva Stadium, we're talking about a real game now, Michael O'Kay, not Leeds United. We'll talk about Gaelic football in just a moment, but you fire ahead. If you've been in the Aviva Stadium uh, watching Ireland beat the All Blacks, uh, especially if you are one of, as I am, one of the dwindling band of people who can say, I was there in 78 and I was there in 19. Were you Um, genuinely there? Yes, I was there. I can prove it. I was there in Thoman Park in 1978. I know it ages me, but I'm (laughs) proud to admit it. Um, uh, And, uh, you know, so I've been there on the two occasions. I met somebody yesterday, actually, who has been at uh, two All Black matches also in his life uh, and has never seen the All Blacks win. Uh, I've actually, (laughs) I've never had that look. But, But that aside, I mean, to me, the two most striking people of this year, the two people who put the state to the ultimate kind of test mm. uh, were Emma Vic Mahuna and, and Vicky Phelan uh, and I, you know they, they will long be heroes of mine and I hope those, the, those they and those who are close to them have a very happy Christmas uh, Sheila to conclude your takeaway message from the year yeah I mean I actually I have mm. Vicky Phelan was, was on my list uh, as mm. well I just think she is a true hero uh, and all of the campaigners who have been involved in this Emma Vic Mahuna um, Stephen Teep as well you know I mean they just for me stand out you know they're literally ordinary people who just took a stand and uh, Hopefully, and hopefully their stand will make a massive difference to the lives of others. But also, can I throw in just the brief sure. football one? Mullingyachta's win of the Leinster Championship. Oh, here, here. Come on, yes, come on, the club yeah. championships. Like that's, that was just magic. A magical GA yeah. story. The as, min- as a the former minnows editor of the Longford Leader who yeah, now I lives can't. in Cavan, you had to take the straddling I, powers, I didn't you? I absolutely have to, yeah. You know, they're my neighbours um, from the when I was a child. The rest of us can't pronounce it. No. 
You have to put a bit of a yeah into it. Mullignacta. Right. Which is a parish of, uh, a half parish of 250 odd people. There's 150 odd members of the GAA club. Yeah. They're about 100 of adult age. They are the Leinster Club Football Champions. It's they amazing. beat uh, Kilmacud Croaks, uh, Dublin Super Club uh, in the final. And it is seriously one of the great sporting uh, attractions of the season. Uh, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. So my thanks to all of you. Fergus Finlay, uh, former CEO of Bernardo's, now a member of the Charities Regulator, uh, former chef de cabinet to the Labour Party. Thank you. Happy Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sheila Riley, former editor of the Longford Leader, now head of uh, digital at Iconic News. Thank you for coming in. Happy Christmas. Uh, Michael Nugent, uh, chairman of Atheist Arnott. Happy Christmas to you. Happy Christmas. Uh,